Vote Donald Trump and Steve King out of office. Let's start there. And people like them. I tell people that the Republican Party is the natural home of white supremacists who engage in politics. Why do I say that? Because white supremacists do not run as Democrats. David Duke left the Democratic Party when he lost two elections, switched his affiliation to Republican. He then won the Louisiana House of Representatives. His reason for switching, he said, was because the Republican Party was closer in ideology to his beliefs. David Duke is a white supremacist. Donald Trump is of the same mold, and so is Steve King. People like that foment racism and hatred. And this notion of white nationalist, Donald Trump called himself a nationalist. He left the white out. Uh, in that regard, he wasn't that stupid. But he called himself a nationalist. Read that to mean white supremacist. Nationalism, uh, uh, white supremacy, the belief that whites are superior to all other races is a false notion. It's always been. And people like that need to be removed from the public sphere. So that's my uh, immediate solution. Get rid of politicians like them. <clears throat> Thank you. Anna, do you have a question? Hi, I'm Anna with KRUI Radio. Um, I thought we should talk about um, your interactions with David Duke. So you had many phone calls with him, and at the time, him being the Grand Wizard, um, this was pretty um, interesting that you had so many interactions with him. And would you say that there are a lot of people like David Duke today in the media and politics? And um, how did his professional appearance have an effect on the recruitment of the KKK? I will say that uh, there's a lot of people in politics and the media who are like that. But all it takes is one spouting off that uh, belief pattern uh, to infect the body politic. Uh, so I think you need to get rid of people like uh, David Duke who are in politics and are in the media. Um, in terms of how, he, how his dress uh, affected uh, things, David Duke was smart in some regards. Uh, he was presenting a positive image of himself to the public. Uh, he did not wear his Klan robe in public. He did not use the so-called N-word in public. He did in private. We talked on it. We talked. We said we threw that word around all the time on the phone. Okay. Um, he was quick to use it. But he wore three-piece suits. He presented himself as if he was a lawyer or a, a respectable businessman. You know, and he did not call himself necessarily the Grand Wizard, he called himself National Director. Although Grand Wizard is in his documents and everything else. So he was spreading the gospel of clan, of clanism and white uh, supremacy under the false colors of this genteel uh, uh, appearance. Mm -hmm. Some people fell for it. And as I said a minute ago, he became a Republican because the Republican Party thinks more like him. 
Now, now think about that for a second. One of the major political parties, the party that gave us Abraham Lincoln, they think and believe like the David Dukes of the world in this country. To me, that by itself is a, is a serious and a scary notion. Yes, definitely. It would be, it would be really uh, scary if it wasn't for the fact that it's actually happening mm -hmm. right now. And that America fell for the uh, David Duke playbook when they elected Donald Trump. Donald Trump followed David Duke's playbook. A lot of the things he was saying on the campaign trail I heard 40 years ago from David Duke. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things. It wasn't a surprise to me. So the very fact that people fail for this, some are still falling for it because we have a Republican uh, um, minority now. A few weeks ago they were the majority who have fallen in sync and in line with what he wants. Mm -hmm. So America is in a scary place today and it's because people want to hear that, they want to believe it, and uh, we're going to get out of it, but I don't know how soon we will and how much damage will be done until we get out of it. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, you know, I hate to I hate to interject real quick here, but um, kind of using that kind of rhetoric, that negative racist rhetoric on the phone, uh, you, you know, the N-word speaking so badly, you know, about the Jewish population, things like that, trying to agree or appease um, David Duke. What what did that, I think, in that moment, and I think now through reflection, how do you how did you feel about that or how did you deal with that once you had to put the phone down? Was it just like, I got to switch into it, I got to switch out? Um, is it like, I can't believe I said that? I mean, what, what, what was kind of going through your head? I was part? cracking up laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta remember, I was working undercover. Yeah. And we were pulling a con job on the Grand Wizard and his cohort. <laughs> so using that language, you had to communicate like them in order to be them. Right. No, or, for, or sure. for them to believe you were one of them. So it was very easy to throw the, those words out. Um, I've heard those words growing up. Yeah. We all have. And it was very easy to regurgitate those words and throw them out and for him to throw them back at me. And we just lobbed it back and forth in terms of talking about the state of affairs back then. Um, how did I feel about it? I felt nothing. I was working. I was acting. That's what undercover work is. And uh, you use the language of the people that you're dealing with. In this case, the language of hate. Because that's how the Klan and other white supremacists communicate. So, um, even if they don't say it in public, they're saying it in private. Hi, Ron. I'm Nicole Shaw. I'm from Quill and Scroll, um, which is an organization that kind of focuses on student journalism. And I was wondering how your undercover work that you started in 1978 <coughs> with the Klan um, could be compared to the police work that you did when you went undercover, and how you could maybe kind of inform um, those students uh, like, what would your advice be for those journalists who are trying to get information from their sources and going undercover? How would they go about starting that initiative and some of the advice that you can give them for actual undercover work? For journalists working undercover? Um, yes. The main point for journalists going undercover is to obtain information from sources. And so in that respect, what advice would you give them? Depending on what you're doing in terms of... Um and undercover reporting, you have to be, you have to be, and you have to become whoever your your target is. 
So in my case, dealing with uh, the Klan, I use the language of hate that they use and communicate in. Um, they accepted me as a white supremacist over the phone because I talked like them. Okay? And uh, I made them believe just simply by talking that I was one of them, with sight unseen. So you have to you have to communicate in the language they communicate in, and you have to be effective at it. You can't be squeamish. I've talked to some people who said, "Well, we couldn't have done that because we couldn't have said the N word or we couldn't have said things about Jews that they were saying." Then you're in the wrong business. If you're going to work undercover, you have to become like the target you're going after, including adopting a persona that you may despise, may make you sick to your stomach, but you have to be that in that moment in order to convince them that you are who you are pretending to be. Uh, and you have to maintain that at all times. You can't bounce in and out of it. The only time I let my guard down was when the phone hung up and I was, uh, when I stopped laughing because we were cracking up all the time over the fact we were making fools of these people, but getting valuable information, which was the core of our investigation. But uh, I laughed an awful lot. While I was on the phone, I was deadly serious. Sometimes I was cracking up laughing while being deadly serious because you couldn't help but laugh. This whole story is hilarious. And I knew it as I was living it. So. Undercover work is something you shouldn't go into lightly. You, uh, you need to be prepared for it. You need to study your, your target, uh, gain as much information about your target as you possibly can. Um, know them inside out. And whatever identity you, you uh, create for yourself for an undercover assignment, you have to know that identity inside and out. One core thing that uh, I was taught and that I lived by during those days was don't stray too far from who you actually are. So I may have had two different undercover names, even though I didn't use it on that investigation, but uh, my date of birth always remained the same if I had to tell somebody how old I was. Um, if nobody asked me, but if I had to have given them a social security number, it would have been my real social security number. You know, in other words, you, may, you maintain as close to your natural persona as you possibly can without having to create something because those are the things that naturally are ingrained in, you, in your mind that you can just conjure up real quick. But everything else that you uh, conjure up, you have to know it inside out so that when you have to, you can throw it all out at them. Yeah, thank you for that advice. I think it really shed some light, um, especially on the fact that you should stay true to who you are. That wasn't something that I would have expected, and so that was really interesting for me to learn, and I appreciate that. There's a myth out there that when I talked to David Duke, I was pretending to be white. I was using a white voice. Reporters threw that out there, and it kind of stuck as a narrative. Uh, it's a lie. I never pretend. I never told any reporter I talked in a white voice. What I told them was I talked to David Duke pretending to be white, and the way I pretended was through language. I talked to David Duke on the phone exactly as I'm talking to you and your listeners are hearing my voice right now. This is who I am. I didn't pretend to be something that I wasn't, okay? And unless you are a good mimic, 
you don't pretend to be something that you are aren't when you start playing with voice and, and things like that. So be who you are, and then polish up, embellish the rest. Yeah, that's a great lesson. Did you want to say something, Harry? Yeah, uh, I'm Harry from uh, Iowa City West, the student publication West Side Story. Um, and I played a uh, jet in a high school production senior year of West Side Story. <laughs> <laughs> I was action, one of the white gang members. Why they didn't put me with the Puerto Ricans, I don't know. I, I, I played I played a white judge in To Kill a Mockingbird. There you go. So. That's what you call diversity. Yeah, we probably could have used you last year because we did West Side Story, but it was all white people. So that would have. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No. Um. Uh. Anyways, my question was that, and Spike Lee touched upon this in the film Black Klansman. Um, when you attend a black nationalist rally early in the film. So I just wondered, um, in addition to infiltrating the Klan, um, in real life, when you went to those rallies, those black nationalist rallies, did you see that as kind of like a conflict of interest almost? Or was that just like you adopting another persona, kind of like you were talking about before, just in the name of work? I never attended a nationalist rally. Oh, you didn't? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. But if you... Had, I suppose, that's... If I had gone to one of those uh, meetings, would I have what? Would you have seen it as like a conflict of interest or just like another part of the job, like another persona you needed to adopt? No, if I had uh, gone to one of those back in those days, it would have been, it would have been relative to my job. Mm -hmm. uh, and the question is, if I... I, I think you're confusing when you say nas black nationalist rally. Or, or you said white nationalist rally, didn't you? No, I said black nationalist. Did you? Hey, my mistake. I didn't go to a black nationalist rally. I went to hear Stokely Carmichael speak, mm -hmm. one of the Black Panther leaders. Um, it was just a speech he gave to, at, at a local bar. Mm -hmm. uh, it was no rally. And uh, I was undercover at that time. It was my very first undercover assignment, in fact. Um, was going into the bar and monitoring Stokely's speech mm -hmm. for my department who was concerned that his uh, rhetorical powers of persuasion would uh, win over the uh, predominantly black audience and maybe incite them to do something that they probably shouldn't do, mm -hmm. like riot. Um, Stokely was a master, uh, a master uh, speaker. Uh, and you see some of it in the movie uh, with John David's character as me where he is caught up in what Stokely is saying because I was a young black police officer and I'm hearing this man who I had seen on TV five years earlier in his heyday with the Panthers uh, I, I was seeing this man give a speech talking about Blacks needing to arm themselves and kill Whitey and the uh, incite revolution and whatnot because the white man was not going to do anything uh, respectful to the black man. And the only thing they respected was from the barrel of a gun. Um, I was hearing all this type of rhetoric and it made sense to me to the point where I started raising my fist and saying black power and right on brother and, you know, 
all that all that nonsense and you see John David do a little bit of that in the film and then I caught myself and realized I can't be doing this pull your hand down mm-hmm. you're on an, in an adversarial role here with with Stokely you know listen don't react in that way so I, I I stayed calm after that and just listened to what he had to say but I was doing a lot of positive uh, head shaking to some of his words because they made sense. You have to understand. I was a black cop, a young black cop. But when I took that badge and uniform off, I was just a black man in America. And I was subject to the same treatment as any other black person was who was not on the other side of the law, the, the positive side, if you will, of the law. And that's something that people tend to forget, especially the black community, is we are part of the community too. Just because we put on a uniform and badge and a gun and enforce the laws doesn't mean that we forget and lose our blackness. We are still members of the black community. And when the uniform came off, I had to function in a dominant white society as a black man, okay? And the problem, The problem for me then and problem for other black officers today is that we are too black for the white community and too blue for the black community who reject us because we have chosen this profession. They see us as traitors to our natural heritage. They see us as not being able to work on behalf of furthering black uh, civil rights. Okay. I was still a black man, and I still am. I have a question. <clears throat> so how, how did you end up dealing with all of this? Because um, I remember in your memoir, you're mentioning about that one time where you were getting fitted for a hat um, with, for your uniform, and <coughs> they, um, they gave you a hat that was too small. And I thought it was cool that you um, were wearing it with pride and you know, eventually you got the hat that was your size, but how did you feel with how um, people of the African-American community looking at you and then your um, your fellow officers, how, how did you feel? Did you ever feel frustrated with either identity or um, what, what were your feelings about that? No, I never let anybody get to me to the point where I felt frustrated. Um, anger, a lot of anger that I had to restrain, but no frustration. I never allowed the naysayers to validate me. And I like to tell people, I validated myself. I knew who I was, what I was. I didn't need their validation. All I needed was for them to respect me for who I am, who I was. Um, the hat situation was kind of funny. This white lieutenant, charge of requisition, property requisition, he, first of all, they didn't have any blacks on at the department at the time, and I walk in with a small afro in comparison to what you see in the the movie. Um, But when I went to get fitted and gave me a hat, he looked at me, he put this on, and it literally sat on the top of my head like a monkey, organ grinder's monkey hat. You know, uh, wouldn't I couldn't pull it down, and I told him that. I showed him that. He said, "I keep it anyway." 
basically shooed me away. Now he's a lieutenant. I'm, I'm a 19-year-old kid. I said, okay, you want to play that game? I'll play it with you. So I wore my uniform. I was a police cadet at the time. I wore my uniform with pride, and we had to wear our hats when we walked out of the building. So when I would go for lunch, a couple of blocks or so, three blocks down the street, I had my hat sitting on top of my head, holding my head straight and proud, and walking to where I had to go. Cars would drive by, and some people would honk and do like that, and, hi, how you doing? I'd wave at them. You know, I knew what they were laughing at. They were laughing at me, looking like a fool. But I wasn't going to give in to that, and I wasn't going to give in to the department. I'd walk into a restaurant, and people would see me, and they'd look at it. It was funny. I looked like a damn clown, and I knew it. But this is the game that, was, uh, uh, that I was thrust in, and I was going to play it to the fullest. And it took about, I don't know, two weeks to a month, and I ran into the chief of police coming from a lunch outing, parking his car, and he sees me walking in wearing my hat. Why are you wearing your hat like that? Lieutenant wouldn't give me one to fit my head, my, uh, accommodate my hairstyle. He said, you go tell him, I said, to give you a hat right now that fits you. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked up to him, and I uh, threw the hat at him nicely and said, the chief said to give me a hat that fits my hair. Mm -hmm. Must have been very satisfying. You could have looked at it, seen the look on his face, the anger. Uh, he went, he was flustered because he asked me what size I wore. I didn't know. He had it recorded in his log sheet. But... He went and found a hat. He said, try this on. I tried it on, and it came down and fit me appropriately with my hair and everything else. I said, this will work. Walk out. He was pissed at me for <laughs> a long time after that. But he got beat at his own game. Okay, mm -hmm. He got beat at his own game. And that's what you have to do when you're breaking new ground in, in, in an area. Uh, if, if you find yourself thrust in that as women, uh, um, you two white guys here, if you're in a dominant minority environment and they're picking on you because you're whiteness, play their game to use it to beat them at their game, okay? You don't necessarily have to get angry. You don't have to uh, go into a Bruce Lee uh, uh, fight routine with him or anything. Simply play their game and defeat them at their own game. Because it's always fun to get the last laugh on people like that. I was wondering, too, um, I really appreciate that you sp spoke about how comfortable you were in your own skin and how that really helped you as a police officer and just um, a person in general. I think that's something that we all strive to do today. And it's a huge struggle, especially with the racial divide that we see today. And so I was wondering how, with the investigation that you started in 1978, how it compares to and informs the racism that we still see today in America. I'll go back to Donald Trump. As I said, Donald Trump followed David Duke's playbook all the way to the White House. He conned 63 million Americans in the process, and I'll, I'll give him this. He pulled off one of the greatest cons in American history. We have a con man in Washington right now who's shut the government down. That's all he is, is a con man. And I say that because the tactics he uses uh, the way he expresses himself, that's the way undercover cops talk, you know? Somebody catches you in a lie, you start talking real fast. 
you change the subject or you get them to redirect their thinking because you're talking so fast. He does it all the time. I used to do it myself. Okay? You play those games with people, and uh, that's all he's doing is running a big con on this country because 63 million people put him there. But he followed David Duke's playbook to reach the White House. He, um, the one thing he didn't do was control his language, you know. He was very explicit in how he felt about stuff and whatnot. It would have eliminated anybody else. America bought it, okay. Um, but the Donald Trumps of the world, the Steve Kings of the world, um, they're a dying breed. Even though it may not seem like it right now, this country is not, when I see somebody wearing a Make America Great hat, to me that hat says Make America White Again. Okay? We aren't going back to those times when we as black people had to be subservient to white people. Okay? America in about 20, 30 years is going to be a minority dominant country, minority majority country. So we would no longer have to live in fear of the white majority, like Donald Trump and Steve King and people like them. You know, they will have to learn to diversify their thinking and coexist with us. But you have to understand, the thinking of white supremacists is all the same. Whether you're a skinhead, a neo-Nazi, a KKK member, alt-right member, they all think the same. They think blacks are inferior to whites. They think any other minority is inferior to whites. They think Jews are the biggest threat to America because in their belief, Jews run the government. They run the media industry, the entertainment industry, and the financial industry. And so it's arguable as to who they hate more, blacks or Jews. They think we as black people have the mentality of, of, of an ape or chimpanzee. And therefore, we need our Jewish handlers to control us and lead us by the hand. Okay? They hate my Latina wife, my beautiful Latina wife. Say hello, everybody out there, to my Latina wife. Hello. Uh, they hate her because she's Mexican. She doesn't belong here. She belongs across the Rio Grande border from where we live in El Paso on the other side, even though she's an American citizen. Okay? That is the danger of white supremacist thinking. Unless you are like them, and they like to say that they're pure white. First of all, let's destroy that myth. There is no such thing as pure white. White Aryan. What the hell does that mean? But this is what they believe. It does not exist. And unless you think like them, then you are one of them. So I had a question. Um, yeah, I was going over, I had taken a class prior, and they were talking about W.E.B. Du Bois' idea of double consciousness. <coughs> um, would you say that that was something that, you know, like affected you and your, like, in your life, or would you even go so far as saying that you had a triple consciousness by also being having to wear a badge as well? 
Yeah, I experienced the, the double consciousness. Um, as I explained earlier, being a police officer, being black, not being accepted by either side, having to make their own way. Um, even growing up in El Paso, I got into three fights in elementary school uh, over, the, over the years because somebody called me the N-word. And responding to that as I was taught to do and a lot of uh, blacks of that generation were taught, uh, you fight somebody who calls you that and you teach them not to call you that by letting them know uh, that you're not that. So I got into fights, got sent to the principal's office, got kicked out of school for three days as punishment. And uh, when I would, would report to my mom uh, why I was kicked out of school, she wasn't angry at me for being kicked out of school. She simply wanted to know one thing. Did you whip his ass? Okay, that's all she asked of me. And I lied twice and said yes, and um, she was satisfied. So I had to learn to overcome the two-ness of being a black man in a dominant white society or in a dominant Mexican society that was controlled by whites. Because all the government offices were basically controlled by whites in those days. Okay? Um, then going on through my career, when I went to Colorado Springs, uh, as I explained earlier, being a police officer, a black police officer, trying to coexist in uh, the two social environments. Um, Tunis is very uh, real. It's very uh, real element of being black in America. And I might go so far as it, 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 Du Bois was talking about the black community. That can apply to any other minority as well. Okay? It can apply to any other minority. And that includes women. That includes women. All right. Um, yeah, so it, it looks like we have run your time. Thank you so much for sitting and talking with us. Um, everyone, that was Ron Stallworth um, with the movie and book, Black Klansman. Um, it's number one New York Times bestseller. Number one New York <laughs> Times bestseller. And uh, six-time Academy Award nominee. Yes, snaps for that. <laughs> yes, major snaps for that. Um, yes, thank you again for um, sitting and talking thank with you. us. Also, he'll be at the Angler tonight at 7.30, um, talking about his um, New York Times bestseller, The Black Klansman. So be there, guys. It's going to be awesome. Not the Black Klansman, just Black Black Klansman. <laughs> Thank you, kids. Support for CareUI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke. They offer new and used bicycles, cycling accessories, and also service all kinds of bikes. They can be found in Iowa City at their new address, 757 South Gilbert Street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8901.